0: Welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I'm lucky enough to be chatting with one of Dublin's finest stand-ups, it's Danny O'Brien. So, hey Danny, thanks for chatting with me today.
1: Hey Paula, how are things? Thanks for having me.
0: No worries at all. So, let's start off by going back in time a little bit. What were you like as a kid? Were you kind of, were you uh, loud and boisterous or were you quiet and shy? I'm kind of guessing it's probably the first one.
1: Yeah, I, I was quite hectic as a kid. Actually, um, I, I was—I um, was actually born. Uh, I think it was nearly eight weeks premature. Oh wow! So um, I, I was quite sick and stuff as a kid. And um, when I was really young, like for the first couple of years, I had a collapsed lung and stuff like that. And then I—I uh, I, I, I kind of bounced back from that. And then uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty pretty wild as a kid. As a bit of a wild imagination as well. Do you know what I mean? I was. Um, yeah, I was, I had to do impressions and stuff when I was really young as well, of like other family members and stuff like that as well, that was kind of my, my party piece around Christmas and stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, so I mean, were you from a large family?
1: Um, Yeah, no, kind of, I suppose sm- small by Irish Catholic standards, you yeah, know, yeah, probably yeah. normal anywhere else in the world, but um, yeah, we're quite, quite a close family and, you know, I think everyone in the family is kind of a, a bit of a storyteller to a certain extent and... You know everyone kind of looked like having the crack everyone would be relatively extroverted in the family, and you know a couple of my, my auntie and uncle played like guitar and that kind of thing you know
0: yeah i was I was wondering whether there's any kind of traits through the family you know sometimes you hear like oh my uncle was very was very talented and he'd be doing stories and all this kind of stuff, yeah whether it's something that came through the family, maybe you know
1: yeah we're just we're a bit of a bit of a storytelling family in that respect, like everyone kind of um It's funny, like every other family, you know what I mean? Like the same stories tend to get regurgitated as the yeah. years go on but everyone everyone silently just kind of lets it go because it's going crack you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i mean what were your your dreams and aspirations for when you left school did you go to college or uni did I, you have a grand plan for what you were going to do I, I
1: didn't really i didn't really know what i wanted to be honest with you like i didn't really get like our career guidance was like you know a 10 minute slot like when you yeah, made to yeah, do some yeah. multiple choice there was no real career guidance in my school. So I didn't really know what I wanted to be honest with you. I ended up going to college and I was doing like business and event management and kind of that kind of, which is is funny now because I I own an event company. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But
1: but back then I, I, you know, I'd always kind of worked in bars and restaurants and hospitality and stuff like that. So I did that and then I ended up leaving that course actually. I got a job. I was working in a nightclub to kind of support myself through college. And I was working in I was working in two bars actually, um, and a restaurant when I was in college. Um, I was kind of split between the three of them. And then I I got a job then working in a massive nightclub called Spirit. And I was like a, I was managing one of the bars and I was about 19. And then, um yeah, so I did that for, for about a year. And then I, I got offered a job to work in New York with their massive nightclub. They opened over there. So I did yeah. that. And I kind of found my feet in that way and I, all those kind of things. Then I, I moved into youth work and stuff after that. But I was, you know, all whilst doing kind of comedy in the background. Yeah. But I, I double jobs for, I, I, as far as I can remember, my life, I've always had two or three jobs, you know. And even now, like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a full, full-time full professional comic, but you also do voiceover. I'm also a yeah. producer. I'm also a promoter. You know, I do I do workshops. I do corporate stuff. You know, you name it. There's no such thing as, as one job anymore, I don't think. Not in entertainment, anyway.
0: Yeah. No, I know you're known as being extremely and extremely busy. One of the busiest stand-ups in <laughs> island
1: you know yeah well like you know what's funny like uh paul i, I used to get this all the time where people like oh would you never you know would you not take a day off or like no one wants to take a day off more than me but like it, particularly where we're at right now yeah. it's very much one step forward like eight steps back so, you know, like you seem to get these windows where you can even just work against, so you have to absolutely maximize them because you don't know how long that window is going to be shut again for. and We're literally in the middle of that right now. Like I would about 90% of my live gigs yeah. wiped out yeah. for December. And, you know, you all the momentum that you build and, you know, getting your show together. So you're going into January on tour again with complete uncertainty whether you can even do your tour, you know.
0: Yeah. And you can't even really plan, I suppose, because, I mean, obviously you're kind of if you're planning tours and stuff, it must be yeah, so we're, difficult. We're, we're, for we're, we've been like left it. in this
1: kind of limbo and it's really like, I've no dependents or anything like that. You know, I've stayed busy during the year. So financially and stuff, I'm fine. But, you know, if I had kids or, you know, a dependents or, you know, I had a massive mortgage or anything like that, yeah. I, I would really struggle. Like, I think that's why a lot of performers just have to get jobs. And it's it's not fair because, I mean, like it, it's not fair in anyone what's happening in the world. But I just feel like uh, I don't want to moan too much, but I, I feel like the, the live entertainment industry is very much drawing the lost, the shortest straw time and time again over the last two years, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, we're, we're supposed to be the most vaccinated country in Europe, but we're still we, seem, it's we ludicrous. Still seem to be suffering with this whole. F- uh, f- fix
1: the health service move forward. <laughs> That's all I'll say on it.
0: So how did the I know you were saying you were doing little bits of comedy and stuff. Back in the day when you were working these three jobs. So how did the actual break into comedy happen? Was it a planned thing? Was it something that been no. in your mind? Was it in your mind for a long time? No,
1: God, no. I come back from Australia. I think it was about 2007, 2008. And Ireland was kind of just before Ireland went into <laughs> the biggest recession in the history yeah. of the Irish state. And <laughs> because um, obviously there's like the Wall Street collapse and that had the knock on effect around the world. And I remember driving, I didn't even have a car at the time. I remember I was driving my mother's car. And I remember just hearing on the radio, it was just like saying, Ireland has gone into, you know, the biggest economic recession. I was just scared going, oh, I'd been in Australia and New Zealand for nearly three years. Yeah. And um, always had an interest in comedy. I- I'd never even actually been to that much stand-up. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I'd only probably been to, I'd say less than five stand-up shows my whole life at that stage. And. I always loved it. I always loved watching it. Like, I saw Eddie Murphy Raw when I was way too young. and <laughs> um, I think my uncle was babysitting me. My mother nearly murdered him. And I remember just, like, I remember going, this is class. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think I was about maybe seven or eight or something. and um, So I've always had a huge interest in it. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd watch Dave McSavage doing street performing yeah, in Dublin. Yeah. And I'd see, like, you know, Des Bishop and, you know, Carl Spain, who's, who's obviously a very good friend now. But I used to watch all of them actually when I was working in that, in the nightclub spirit, the laughter lounge, I think I had a massive flood and it moved venues. So the laughter lounge is actually in spirit where I worked. So mm-hmm. for months I would be behind the bar watching the comedy. Yeah. And now yeah. I, I gave with all of those people. So it's, it's a bit surreal in that respect, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, well, it's a bit of a, bit of a leap though, isn't it? From working behind the bar to engineering. Yeah. Behind you the kind of learn and
1: like. I wasn't studying it, I was kind of, yeah, it was great for me, like, you know what I mean? Because it was, it was a proper, like, dance club, it was carnage. So, like, you know what I mean? We're getting to sit back and watch comedy and, you know, it was so chill compared to what was going on at five o'clock in the morning on normal nights.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, what, what memories do you have of your first stand-up gig?
1: I did a writing course, um, my mother, it was actually my mother. Do you know what? Cause I was quite miserable and I was kind of working in a bar and I just had, I didn't know what I wanted to do. There was no jobs. People were getting their houses taken off them. Yeah. It was a really, it was the, it was the one of the grimmest times, bar, the last few years that Ireland had ever been through. And my mother was like, you're, listen, you're not happy. Like I was just going to move to London and I've been working in construction and a few other different things in Australia. And I was like, maybe I'll just go to London and do that. Yeah. And then. I did a writing course where it was like kind of comedy writing. It was every Monday in Doyle's pub. We'd meet up and it's funny. I'm, I'm really, really good friends with some of the people from that group. I was actually groomsman at, at one of the guys weddings that I met just purely through that group. So you did the writing course. I think it was six weeks. And at the end of the six weeks, you had a, you had an option. It was on the 15th of February, actually, I remember because the poster said the, the post Valentine's Day massacre was the name <laughs> of the show and I think back in that set, I was so rushed and so nervous and mm. getting full blown. I remember walking around my bedroom with a remote control as a microphone, just saying my set over and over and the anxiety yeah. and stuff. And yeah. it was so scary. Like and I knew all my mates would be there. and Like my mates had said to me for years, now you should do comedy. And, you know, it's just, it is a different beast though, from saying it to just actually doing yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I got up and I did it and it, it went well. Like I you know, I, I cringe to death if I had to watch that setback now, you know. But uh, on the night, like, it was a, I, I had a ripper of, of a gig and I was delighted. And then my second gig was in the Battle of the Acts and the Ha'penny with Tony Ferns and I, I won it, and and I didn't have too many friends in. I think I like, would one friend in actually with with his partner, and that was it. So it was like an audience vote thing. So I won that. So I was delighted. Then I got that that classic new comic false hope, where you're like, all right, I'm you know I'm a legend. This is great. Like this is gonna be my career. And then I died on my arse on my third gig, painful gig, like about seven or eight people there in an awful little mini conference room up near Barry's Hotel, um, just on the north side of the inner city. And it was Mother's Day, actually, if I remember, because my mother came into it, and it was just horrible. Like, it was just dreadful gig. Um, and then, yeah, that, that was nice and humbling. And then I just kind of worked away at it from there and, you know, I started hosting the comedy crunch then with column, and then we expanded the club. That that started running more nights, and I just kind of gradually faded one thing to another. Like, but I worked multiple jobs for years, and and then I suppose I I, I was a social care worker as well in the homeless and addiction services. Yeah. So I was doing youth work for a few years, which was really chaotic and really, really mentally demanding work. Like you're working with kids with like some serious serious issues and like kind of low socioeconomic areas with a lot of a lot of social problems in their communities. So I was doing that by day and and any gig I could then at night. And I remember the burnout was getting like I, I think it was one of the most stressful times in my life as well. And then I moved in. just in case I wasn't stressed enough, I then moved into the homeless and addiction services. And yeah, so I was doing wow. that by day. it was you know what though, was I liked the work better. Like you're working with adults and it was but it was really full on. Like you're working with people in society that literally no one else, you know, um, will give any time to. And it was really demanding. Like we had a lot of issues. There was a lot of, and um, like you know, we had we had deaths in service. You know, we had, we had regular overdoses. was all that kind of thing. But wow. like I would do my the shifts for like 13 and a half hours as well. Oh my god. And um, yeah, or 13 hours. Excuse me. It was 13. It used to be like 7:30 day, 7:30 a.m. to like seven to 8:30 p.m. And, like, I'd skip my break so I'd be able to finish at 8.15 so I could get to the laughter lounge for 8.35. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, and uh, you know, I, I found it hard, like, because, you know, you're just exhausted. But, like, getting on stage in a comedy club would make you forget about work and work would make you kind of realise how insignificant your your moaning was about comedy, you know?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you've done a lot in Edinburgh. Over yeah. Years. I mean, what was that uh, like? I mean, you, I know you've done consecutive many consecutive years now.
1: Yeah. I think I've done nearly 10 years. I've done over 10 years, but my first kind of proper one, I I did a couple where I went over and we did compilation shows and they're nearly just like a glorified holiday. You know what I mean? Like you're just doing spots. You're having the crack. It was great. And then I did my first solo show in 2012 there. That was called All My Friends. And It was just basically like three fifteen-minute sets, kind of stitched together with a loose narrative, and I had a little video thing that I made at the end, which was like load of different pictures that were kind of callbacks to the show. And that was, you know, that's what I would always say to any comics: like, if you really want to do this, go do Edinburgh for a month because you'll do a year's worth of gigs in a month. You know,
0: that's the thing: there's a lot of planning involved. You know, I don't people a lot of people don't realize how much planning there is. You know, you don't just rock work, up. You. you don't just rock up and say, "Oh, I think I'll do some gigs."
1: No. Need... Edinburgh genuinely will make or break you, but <laughs> you will only ever come back a better comic. You know what I mean? And you get, I get a lot of comics. used to go, "Why would I go to Edinburgh? I'm just going to lose ten grand." Like yeah. I've never yeah. lost ten grand. <laughs> 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 like. Like, I've always made money out of the fringe. Now, like, you know, when you're doing the bigger venues, they, they do annihilate you financially. Yeah. Like, they take massive percentages, but you just gotta be, be smart. I always did two or three shows. I would always host other shows. I would do as many guest spots as possible. And, um, you know, my, my early day show would pay for my flyer and team that would then sell my late show. So you learn all this as you go. But I think a lot of people, it's a shark tank, Edinburgh. So you'll get, pro- mm. I've been, you know, had promoters and PR companies like, oh yeah, you know, give us thousands and we'll make you a star kid. And, yeah. you, and like, unfortunately, plenty of people do that and they, they just rinse them. Like that's the truth of it. And you know, you live and learn and you go, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. Like I worked too hard for that. So I think it's about learning from your stakes, mistakes and growing every year. And you know, Edinburgh, like anything, you've got to learn how to work it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you gotta work the festival right for you and go, what's, what's the best that I can get out of this festival? What do I want out of this festival? You treat Edinburgh like a gym. You know, you do your show every night for 24, 25 nights. That show is gonna be really polished and really tight coming oh, yeah. out the other side. Yeah. Yeah. But if you just go there and go on the piss for a month, and <laughs> um, you know what I mean? You're just gonna come back with like, you know, a chest infection and like <laughs> kidney failure and an empty bank account. <laughs>
0: I mean, it must be great for making connections, though. You know, you've got the, you know, the, the creme de la creme, basically, of world comedy appearing at Edinburgh. Yeah. You
1: don't week. know who will be in. Like, I, I had a promoter saw me at Spank one night doing a late show at about half two in the morning. People were absolutely hammered. <laughs> like, as rowdy as a late night show can be. She then came to see my solo show. And then I got a message. I remember she actually messaged me on Facebook, I think. And was like, hey, um, I'm going to come see your show. I never spoke to her. And then I didn't know who she was. Yeah, and then yeah. a couple of months later, I was going to Australia on a three month tour with Best of the Edinburgh Fest. That's
0: crazy, isn't it? You know, you know? something. like just that one little, one yeah. person seeing you could change, you
1: know. You got, you know, you got to put yourself out there and like, you mm. know, I've, 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 I've done a few tours. Same with, actually that was one of the, that was one of the hardest ones for me that I was the most upset about was losing a New Zealand tour. Cause so I, I wanted to do New Zealand comedy festival for ages and the owner of the festival came to my show in 2019 and it was the wettest the edinburgh's like dublin but it was the wettest of the wet like there was actually floods in the Cowgate. i remember like <laughs> barely being able to get into my venue just like like proper ankle deep flooding wow and my shot my my run had been flying i been selling out pretty much every night and um, nearly selling out you know the midweek and this night i turned to it because the weather was so bad and of course, it was the night that the New Zealand Comedy oh. Festival owner was coming in, and he sat right up the front.
0: And I'm like, Oh God.
1: <laughs> and, the, and I knew he was in as well. I was like, ah. Oh. So I just did the show as best I could, and he, like that's a good thing about promoters as well. They know the game. Do you know what I mean? They know. They don't judge you on. They judge you on the quality of your show. They don't judge yeah. you on the on you know, whether it's it's packed or whatever. But anyway, I got booked for that and then obviously that 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 along with Hong Kong and a few other tours uh sadly didn't go ahead. But hopefully maybe in, in twenty twenty three if another fifty million variants don't appear, you know.
0: <laughs> I mean that's the thing, it, it, with Edinburgh, people will randomly go and see shows. You know, they might know nothing about you at all. Yeah. And people will just say, Oh I'll go and see this guy, he sounds quite interesting. And they'll go and that's it. It's like a light bulb moment. Do you know what I mean? They they go and just have the most amazing time. And then through yeah, them, like, people, word of mouth of mouth. I
1: always say that. Like go see your favourites and go see the the people that you love and the comics. Yeah. But like take a chance on a show. You never know. And like, you know, word of mouth is so powerful in Edinburgh. Like I've seen some incredible shows over there from comics I've never worked with, let alone ever heard of. And that's the thing, you just don't get to see that stuff. Anywhere else like Edinburgh is, I, I really wish that we could, we could build something like that in Dublin and it's something I'm kind of working towards. I, I yeah. own a few festivals now and I've, I've been asked to kind of produce a few different things now over the next, ne- next year or so, but maybe not even a fringe because there was 10 days in Dublin and Dublin fringe does its thing, but I think it's crying out for like a, a fringe, fringe festival. You know what yeah, I mean? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. About, it's about getting the organization together and Getting the venues on board and stuff like that, but I think we could really do something great in Dublin because everything's so close in Dublin. Like you could walk to two, three venues, you know.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Laughter Lounge is is kind of similar, you know, in that you could go and see a show. You might know one of the acts, but you might mm. not know the other two, and you could come out yeah. and go, like, "Oh my god, but, those guys were amazing."
1: Yeah, and you know the clubs are great, but like lineup shows of people doing their club sets and. Um, the thing about Edinburgh is, like, it's people doing their hours, you know what I mean? So you're getting to see a totally unique show. You'll never see someone's hour show in the club, do you know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll just be doing their best 25, 35 minutes, whatever it may be. And I think that's the, that's the beautiful thing about Edinburgh, is just getting to see mad shows about mad... Like, I saw I remember, a show years ago called The Elvis Dead by a guy called Rob, Rob Kemp. Yeah. And it was on at midnight in Monkey Barrel on Blair Street. And then he did... Uh, show, it was basically a show about the, you know, the evil dead, those cult films. Yeah. Yeah. With the hand running across the ground and the chainsaw for hand and everything. He did a show about that, telling the story of that with a projector screen all through the mediums of Elvis songs. <laughs> right. And he's dressed up as Elvis and he's got, it was wild. It was wow. absolutely wild, but it was hilarious and totally unique and totally different. And that for me is why I love the fringe. I think it's, it's so inspiring and it's such good crack as well. Now it'll break you as well. You know what I mean? You gotta, yeah. you gotta. I've just, I, I, I was sick for three months actually after my last Edinburgh. Oh my god! I was so, I was so burnt out. And the, the pandemic for me has been good in that I realised like to take the work that's important and to try and just you know stop working so much because sure. it'll kill you. You know. So I'm trying to be more selective at what I do, and even with my tour now next year. I want to be more selective about, you know, not trying to do 30, 40 dates and absolutely killing myself. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there's no point burning yourself out. <laughs> you know I mean? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Quali-
1: quality over quantity. Exactly. That's, that's the that's the motto, you know.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, you come across obviously, like having seen you perform live, you come across as extremely confident on stage. Um, so are you a per- are you a sort of person that Do you get pre-gig nerves? Do you suffer from any nerves or are you just totally just let's go and do
1: it? No, of course I do. Absolutely. Like, and I I teach workshops about this. I do comedy and confidence building workshops and schools and universities and and corporates as well. And I'm like, I I get nervous all the time. Yeah. Like, on the new show now, like, you know what I mean? The only time I won't be nervous doing that new show is when it's pretty much finished the tour and I've got it down, you know? Whereas, like, I think nerves are good because nerves show you care If you if you don't care at all. I think that reflecting yeah. show and reflecting the yeah. stand up, so I think those nerves are super important, and they they create nerves create an energy as well. You know, mm. it's a build up of tension and release. So yeah, hundred percent. Like not not nothing like I used to when I first started. I was like pure brown pe- brown paper bag. Like give me some zanax. <laughs> I'm just gonna go have a little panic attack in the laneway. But um, not 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 so much to that degree. But I, I would definitely get nervous, particularly before solo shows or big shows, and. It's about getting your head in that right space yeah. and kind of get getting yourself ready and making sure and, and recovering from your mistakes as well. Like if you're doing a gig and it's not going the way it should be, you need you need those ten thousand hours of experience mm. to be able to change direction and to I think self-awareness is probably the most important thing in comedy. Like accept when something's not going good, accept when you're bombing and change it and go, How can I change this? How can I change direction? Change gear on this to make it go better. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's what I think is, is super important.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like you saying about you dying on stage for your third gig. I mean, I think everyone has to, has to die at some point yeah. in their career to learn from it. Do you know what I mean? You everyone, we,
1: we only learn from our mistakes. Yeah. Like, that is the only way that we learn. And I've met comics over the years who are just like, yeah, yeah I've never died. And I'm like, like you're obviously, so how can you be that deeply, deeply insecure yeah. that you're not yeah. even willing to admit? Like all of us die. Like it, the only way I write a new show is by trying out a bit and going, Oh that worked, that didn't. That worked, yeah. that didn't, that worked, that didn't. It's all trial and error. The whole thing is trial and error, you know?
0: Uh talk about confidence and uh, gaining confidence. You've done a lot of work helping kids in gaining confidence. I mean, how did that all how did that all come about? Was it just through the work that you'd been doing?
1: Um, I well I used to be a youth worker for yeah. years and then um I, I used to do facilitate like drama groups and stuff. So I do like I was asked to do like a comedy kind of drama workshop. Hmm we get them, like, doing sketches and stuff, and it was just kind of getting them up talking. And then during the the lockdown, did some of them for some, like, local youth services and communities around Ring's End, Dublin 8, and Dublin's inner city. So we facilitated a few of them, and then a a teacher contacted me about doing some in the schools. And I already had a template from this because I'd done a few talks on um, comedy and confidence building and the business of comedy. I'd done a few of them like, Leicester University and in UCD and in Trinity as well yeah so i kind of had the template for that already done so that was just developed in into the classrooms where you know we get the kids up onto the microphones and get them talking and it, it like it, it's so powerful getting someone up onto a microphone and talking it's, it's such a transformative thing for a young person particularly in transition year which is usually the ages that we do it for and that kind of coming of age you know 15 16
0: mm.
1: you know it's a very awkward age and you know some of the, the 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 teenagers we had up like they they like their teachers wouldn't have heard them say maybe two words in four years, yeah, and getting them up onto a microphone and getting them to talk a little bit about themselves, so when they come down the road and they're doing job interviews or they're going to college or even just how they speak with other adults, you know cause everyone's living on their phones now and they're yeah, like, yeah. Like, myself' I'm guilty of it myself, Like we are all so addicted to our phones, and i'd I'd hate to have been a teenager growing up looking at a screen. The, you know, oh, the amount yeah. of anxiety like it's like all anxiety levels for teenagers is through the roof. Their mental health issues are through the roof. So if you can help them get up and to be confident, like if you can get up and say, like, you know, a funny or embarrassing thing to happen to you in front of all your classmates, then yeah, yeah. comparatively doing anything else, whether it's an interview or speaking to, you know, a board or whatever it may be, or get your first apartment or, you know, though I think that it's, it's huge and it's a huge life skill to have. And I, I wish that I had done something like that when I was that age, you know.
0: Also, thing thing, at 15, 16, you know, my nephew is exactly the same. He'd rather, I don't know, he'd rather run out in front of traffic than, you know, stand yeah. up, stand up and, and talk in front of people. But it's a good, it's a great age, isn't it? You you think it's kind of, you know, it's preparation for life, basically. 15 years old, you're just, you're going to be going out into the world. And if you can't, you can't stand up and talk in front of people. Yeah, totally. It must be so, so hard.
1: Like it's, it's it's a skill we're learning. Like I think how we communicate, it's, it's been taken away from us. Like the, Mm. you know, the pandemic has, has just pushed us further apart and it's driven us more into our mobile phones and tablets and it's, it's taken away human connection you know when's the last time someone spoke to someone on the street now you know you couldn't even you like you say hello to an old person walking down the road it's nearly like an act of terrorism <laughs> at this stage you know yeah. you, you know so that's something that I, i'm trying to help bring it back to loads of different industries and be like we need that human connection like that's that's part of what we are it's part of our dna and engaging with people is you know it, it's the most important part of our of human nature i think
0: yeah, no, it's an amazing and very important thing that you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Helping these these kids with life skills that they might not necessarily yeah. get anywhere else.
1: They give us plenty of grief as well. Let me just be very clear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, not, not, I'm sure it's, it's not all very straightforward. It's, you know? <laughs> it's not
1: all. It's not all that plain sailing. Listen, like, like we always get out of. We always get more out of it than then though. Like you know what I mean? Like some of the stories and stuff are just so so funny. And then. Like you know, I remember this one kid. Uh, I actually talk about this. I'm talking about this on a new show. Who say to him, you know, what's your funniest thing you've you know what's ever happened here, or what's the most embarrassing? You know, just kind of get them talking, and you know, or as well, I'll say to them, what's your pet hate? Because if yeah. you can't get people talking about those two things, someone will always tell you what they hate, always.
0: Yeah.
1: And be happy to do so. And I remember this one teenager. He just goes, Do you know where? Uh, do you know the dust on jelly babies? <laughs> we were like yeah and he goes I hate that and everyone just started laughing because it's just like it's it's so relatable oh, that, it's know? such a weird thing to say but also incredibly relatable and everyone in the class was like I hate that I just I just I just never caught it because it's kind of a weird and zippity, flowery kind of talc it doesn't really taste sweet and it's you know it kind of makes you it's kind of like a like it makes you kind of your skin crawl a little bit there's something about it you know and all those kind of things like and they're they you know they the teenagers are so much more interested even when they think than they think they are and like oh, I've nothing to say I've nothing to say 100% of the students that I've worked with who said they've had nothing to say have had something to say yeah you know
0: yeah i mean so with stuff like that obviously and you're saying you're putting in the new show so do you have a do you have a process for writing your material are you a kind of are you a notebook carrier or do you kind of put voice notes into your phone I, I, I do
1: it all. I do voice notes into my phone. I have notes on my phone of about a thousand notes. I need to go up and go through all that. <laughs> <laughs> it gives me stress. I have a whiteboard. Oh, a wow. bit yeah. So the whiteboard is kind of bits I've tried and then I work on them and refine them and then try and put them into an order that makes sense and put a narrative through them. And that, that's how I write a solo show. And like when it comes to short bits for clubs, I just kind of, you know, you get the odd bit that's just completely off the cuff whether you're talking to an audience member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, God, I must remember that. And um, then the listening back in yourself is painful. Watching yourself <laughs> is the worst. The worst. I hate it. It's so bad, actually. I remember I was did a preview on Top Secret in Covent Garden there a couple of weeks ago. Because I'll just paraphrase a bit of the material into, like, a little sentence, and that will represent, like, five minutes or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh so is there anything that you've put on there over the last you know what's the most recent thing you put
1: on there um all there's about 20 different lines from my new show which is called the god of all things bad which yeah. is based on uh meeting a deity in guatemala <laughs> and uh going on a bit of a spiritual journey so it's all that it's all about that that's the kind of thing that the new show is about and um, see so yeah, it's, it's all the stuff i went to central america for three months i did uh I did gigs in completely Spanish-speaking comedy clubs where I was like the only person speaking English and doing a set in English. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it was pretty daunting. And then I did like outdoor gigs, like to load of like beach bombs, and it was great. Like I, I, I did one on a rooftop. And...
0: Um. So yeah, you you talk about uh, Guatemala there. I mean, you're extremely well-travelled. I mean, have if you even in the in the past couple of months, you know, you seem to be. Literally, you know, every time I look at you on Facebook, you're in a different country, or you know, or what have you. Yeah. Do you think that comedy travels well? I mean, you saying there about the, you're the only English-speaking comedian. Do you think comedy travels well, or do you have to tweak your do you have to tweak your sets when you're in another country? Yeah,
1: absolutely, like you've you got to tweak your sets, and I mean, you're 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 set for expat audiences around the world. You know, can be can be relatively generic, but you would also include kind of colloquial stuff as well. You know, maybe talk about write some stuff about what what you've seen since you've been there about different cultures and stuff. And it's such a great way to test yourself. I think that's what I love about gigging abroad as well. It's too easy to get you know to get to get kind of comfortable here, and um, you know, I always used to get com- you know comics ask me, are there many Irish in you know? Because God forbid they might have to do material that isn't for people from Ireland. Do you know what I mean? Like it's uh, it, it's easy to kind of go for like the, the low hanging fruit, but like when you when you go abroad, you need to kind of you got to bring your A game because they owe you nothing. You know what I mean? In a lot of countries, they don't know who you are. You know what I mean? Like yeah. especially in Guatemala, um, they were just like, just here, who's this Irish fella with a weird voice? So you've got to deliver and um, bring the noise to them, and I, I love that because it makes it such a stronger act as well. I've been able to get to do those gigs and to do them well. I think it's it's a really good test of a comic and you get to travel and see the world under the guise of work, which is what I love the most out of it, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, do you ever, I mean, do you have to, obviously, I know some of your stuff is quite observational and, you know, you, you're talking about like when I've seen you performing here, you're talking about very Irish centric things. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you kind of change it for a, an audience like that?
1: Wherever you are, like, it depends on who's there. Like, you know, if you're in Guatemala, there was Americans there, do some American stuff, and a lot of Americans, French, Germans, so all those years of, of different jokes you've kind of written about various different countries. They all kind of amalgamate together. I suppose you kind of cherry-pick the best material to suit the audience that's there. And, you know, like, I, I remember doing a gig in Guatemala, and there was a fella just started angle-grinding a steel door Next door, while I was on stage, <laughs> going everywhere. like, I don't the gig was outdoor anyway, and there was like motorbikes tearing past. It was down at the beach, this place called El Paradon, and I was just, I just started laughing. I was like, well, What is this place? I was like, It's like, you know, some kind of tiki bar called Metal Shop, like, you know, and just, you know, I suppose you have to acknowledge the elephant in the room wherever you are, and that'll always kind of get a good laugh and talk about what's going on. And then there was actually a preacher. Doing like the loudest ceremony ever, like you could actually <laughs> hear them in the audience. My gigs. so the preacher going, motorbikes and the angle grinder, <laughs> and I'm just there going, like, where am I? What are we doing? Like,
0: yeah, where, where's my notebook? I need to, <laughs> I need to make yeah. some notes.
1: <laughs> you know, it's, 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 those kind of gigs are great, and they, you know, they they really test you, and they just, you know, you can't have the perfect setup every time. You know, and even learn like, how to do Zoom gigs and stuff like that. You know, it was all a complete learning curve. We all had to start from scratch again. And But all the online virtual events that I did really, really makes you appreciate the live stuff more, you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, lockdown must have been hard for anybody in your profession. Do you know what I mean? It must have been you know, a horrible, horrible time. But you'd have to learn learn new ways of working. Do you know what I mean? All this new technology and stuff that we, we acquired.
1: You've got to diversify and adapt, you know what I mean? Like, I did Zoom gigs. I was teaching in schools and um, did outdoor events. I ran my own comedy festival. You know, I did loads of things that I never would have thought about doing that are now going to be part of my, my professional life, you know, probably until whenever I stop working. And um, so, you know, like, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from it. I'm trying to stay positive for all, for all the moaning and stuff like that. I'm just trying to take all the good things that come out of this and kind of learning what's important to you. And, uh, you know, never never taking live audiences for granted, especially after the last two years, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's material, isn't it? At the end of the day, you know, you, you come out with all these new experiences.
1: Yeah, and you know what, like, I noticed it in these weird little in-between times when we're kind of coming back and then we're not, and then we are. Audiences, like, comedians need to learn to be comfortable again with our live gig and you know it's going to be a process and similarly audiences audiences need to learn how to be audiences again yeah
0: yeah yeah very was, very true you know
1: it was a bit chaotic a lot of the gigs and people have just genu- genuinely forgotten because how could they not like they've been locked at home for like 18 months a lot mm-hmm. of people and of course they're not gonna you know they might they might not it takes time to kind of not be weird about being out again and talking to people again and being in a public setting after so long away and that's that's something that we need to learn to get used to I think everyone should kind of help each other like I think the, the comics should try and be a bit more forgiven of the audiences and the audiences should be a bit forgiven of the comics until we kind of get back to where we need to be, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You go back to your, your first comedy show as a, as a punter and it just feels really weird sitting next to people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where you've been told, stay away, stay away. There, there's a there's
1: a vibe, you know what I mean? There is a vibe and you, you have to just kind of go, okay, it's going to take a little bit of time to get back. And to be honest with you, like none of our lives are ever going to be the same again after this. Just simply aren't. Like things, things have changed forever. And how we look at things has changed forever and the live entertainment industry has without a shadow of a doubt changed forever so it's how do we how do we manage our expectations about what the yeah. future is going to be and we've got to be realists as well as well like i think a lot of performers and people in my industry just sat around waiting for it to come back again and it simply isn't coming back again i don't want to burst anyone's bubble listening <laughs> here but if you think that you know things are going to come back to the way they were the good old times yeah. you're, you're living in a fantasy land it, it simply isn't you know it's It's going to be different, but you've got to be ready for it to be different and you've you've got to move with it, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, no, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll be back to normal. We'll get back to normal eventually. But, you know, I don't think, as you say, nothing is going to... Now, after all this, I don't think we're ever going to go back to anything vaguely resembling the life we had two years ago.
1: Yeah, just, listen, things have changed. But on a more positive note on that, I think it has created a huge demand and hunger for live entertainment. Oh, hugely, yeah. Listen there's no replacement for it. nothing will highlight how much you will miss a live gig than doing a zoom gig you know what I mean? yeah that live connection that that interaction with people that that energy is irreplaceable you know i think i think it has made people appreciate like how much how much we we kind of miss live gigs so when things do come back i'm hoping that that hunger will be strong there for it you know
0: yeah and it must have been so hard doing zoom gigs Do you know especially if you you can't see your audience and you haven't got that interaction that you would have in a live setting
1: yeah you just like like you, you get good at them because you you know same as anything you, you do so many of them like i've i don't know how many have i got i think i've, I've six in the next two days
0: oh my god
1: yeah i've four on thursday i've five on thursday actually yeah five i've seven sorry seven
0: wow i suppose i mean is that normal gig wise i suppose you'd yeah. be doing you'd be doing more gigs wouldn't you normally
1: last year i remember the 17th and 18th of december i did ten in two days five hours and they're all hours as well these are the ones the next couple of days are a bit shorter but they, i nearly i nearly had a mental breakdown after that i, lying <laughs> on the I actually lay on the floor on the tiles in my kitchen face down
0: oh my god because
1: my head was so melted yeah and so fried from um it's just it, it does just always something and it's just, it's, you, you put the energy into an online Zoom, it's about four times what you put into, like, a yeah. live show, you know?
0: Yeah, that's crazy. So let's talk a little bit about music now. Um, have there been any kind of major music loves in your life, be it an artist or a band?
1: Yeah, like massively. Like I always I, I always actually pick the music kind of for my shows before I write the show. Yeah. And it helps me like a pre intro song. What's the intro song gonna be? What's the mm. outro song gonna be? Is the outro the outro usually has a connection to the show and it's usually a bit of a callback in itself. Like I had material about um, being in a Pilates class and a woman calling me Darren O'Brien instead of Danny. <laughs> that turned out to be the real name of a of a rapper called Snow, who was a Canadian rapper who had that song called Informer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and, and my show was called Reformer, and it was all that thing kind of thing. But at the end of the show, I played Informer as a kind of a callback to the. Yeah, crowd. yeah. So that kind of thing is huge, and I kind of loved like. <laughs> You know, I was what I loved like old school hip hop, like, yeah, like a yeah. massive like two and biggie, you know, which really represented my struggle as like a white teenager. <laughs> in the <mountains> of <laughs> I was like, we, there was about six of us as well growing up, wasn't they? Say like, exactly gang culture down, yeah, yeah. I was a big, big Nirvana fan as well, uh, massive into Nirvana, and I yeah, seen when I was young. And then I kind of started moving into the likes so, of, like, went into Green Day then for a little Green Day phase. Then I was big into, the, like, the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers. Yeah. I you know, went through my little kind of rave, my little rave phase. And then, yeah, and, like, I, my Spotify is all over the place. Like, I, just, I'm <laughs> that. I said, like, like I'd rather someone saw my internet search history <laughs> than my Spotify playlist because they're just all over the place. Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just such a mishmash of everything, like. I could have some classical in there, you know, followed by Christy Moore, followed by <laughs> you know Biggie's Balls, juicy, followed by like whatever. It's all over the place. So yeah, I, I love. I'm a big Jerry Cinnamon fan as well. I actually, love him. The yeah, Scottish musician. Um, I like his story as well. He's an underdog. He was like a. Was playing in bars because a lot of my friends do that in Scotland and they're mates of them. And they all, you know, same as comedy, they'd all play in their bars. And I love, I've I've started incorporating live music into one of my comedy clubs actually. So, yeah, yeah, I have a live musician on now before all of my shows for half an hour and then I have them on for another half an hour afterwards to try and generate employment. And it really gets the audience going as well. Like, the audience are so up for the crack by the time the the comedy starts, yeah. Um, and I just I just love live music so it's win-win for me, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, the music's massive and it's like it's it it's it's what gets you through it, those you know, hundreds of thousands of miles that you're driving all year. It's the you know, when you're it's half two in the morning and you're driving back from deepest, darkest now you do radio <laughs> the and it's like, all right, here we go. It's time <laughs> to get some power ballads on. It's just like <laughs>
0: Bit of Celine Dion on the way home.
1: Oh, yeah, like I'd, I'd be <laughs> Kate Bush getting getting penalty points on the N11.
0: Kate Bush, Blair and windows down. <laughs> so I mean, but I mean, do you get to do you get much chance to go to gigs? I'd say it's very rare for you to have a, a Saturday night off.
1: Yeah, like my first Saturday night off, I think, in over ten years in December um, was last Saturday. So it was actually really nice. Like, I was just hung out with pals went for some dinner. Yeah. And it was, it was nice to take a break. And I'm, I'm trying to schedule in more breaks if possible, you know. But this is the thing, like, where everyone's like, oh, it takes some time off. But then I'm like, I might not be able to gig properly again mm. for another month, you know mm. what I mean? Or whatever yeah. way it may be. Like, I've only got like two live shows now between now and Christmas. Yeah. And then luckily, I, I managed to sort some gigs for myself in the UK before New Year's. And I'm doing a New Year's show in London. And a few other bits and pieces in January, but if I hadn't, like, if I didn't go to the UK, I, you know, what would I be doing? Yeah, like you know I mean? I'd be, I'd you know, I'd be getting my tour going and stuff like that. But you know, yeah, the, the live gigging is, is what I love and what I miss. And like, I, you need those live gigs to get ready for your tour. You're trying out bits and pieces. It's it's so essential, so essential.
0: Yeah. Now you come across as one of these people that's consistently trying to think of ideas. Do you know what I mean? There's no kind of like your brain doesn't stop wearing. It's always yeah, the hand, the hand planning much
1: on the wheel all the time, and that's something I'm trying to work on it myself. And yeah, I, I've done that even, I've, I, I talked about this in the show as well. And I am, um, I went on a bit of a spiritual journey with a friend of mine where um, we went to a DMT shaman up in the hills of Wicklow. Wow, a spiritual psychedelic journey deep into my consciousness. <laughs> and so yeah, that was that was the most hectic thing I've done. Like, I've done prison shows. Um, you know, I, I've done I've done mad stuff over the years. All and I drove a motorbike all around Ireland, I yeah. drove a motorbike to Scotland. I've done loads of different things to write a show every year, but that was the wildest thing that I've done in a day. It was like, yeah, it was it was it was it was extremely intense. Really glad I did it, but uh, very full on thing to be doing. And um, but I'm excited now. At least that's I yeah, that's how I write shows. I write write shows by doing by doing things. You know, that's how I think. That's that's my process, and everyone's different, but that's that's what I did.
0: Yeah, I mean, prison shows must have been <laughs> like, you know, probably yeah. the, the, the last place you'd expect to go and see some stand-up comedy in a I in was a prison. So
1: hungover one day, I <laughs> one them, I absolutely. <laughs> I like, did it. I did the three arena the night before with Bill Burr. And oh wow! I and I was like, there's not. I was like, there's no way I'm not going to be stay at a lock-in with Bill Burr. So I ended up like on the absolute like batter, and I was poisoned with a hangover the next day I had to drive to wheatfield prison and it was one of the <laughs> hottest days of the year and i actually thought i was going to die in my car i was like just drinking as much water as possible i was like a hamster with one of those little water bottles just like <laughs> get to the prison. and one of the prison guards had been at the gig the night before weird it's a weird environment You go in, no one really talks and then it was just awkward silence when we were in between the doors going from the outside of the prison and I was like, Oh my god! I was like, I guarantee I'm banging a drink. I was just sweating, <laughs> um, and then I remember the, phone, the prison guard just goes, uh, good "Go <laughs> and I don't and then, and then know, I just went, "Thanks." He knew I'd obviously been on the tear afterwards, and then no one else said anything. It Was just pure awkward, like just pure elevator chat, just like da da da. da, da
0: and
1: just standing there, and then the workshop thing we were doing, myself and John Cleary, uh, loads of them weren't allowed to do it because someone robbed a football. Yeah, I think they they kicked it away. They did something anyway. And it ended up being this kind of small talk to a group of prisoners. And it was so hot, I was absolutely dying. And I was just (laughs) like, oh my God. I can't see it anymore.
0: (laughs) You're not that old. You're you're, you're still a young whippersnapper.
1: Yeah, no, it's listen, I'm just, yeah. Like, I I can recover fine from like. spiritual psychedelic experiences <laughs> the point absolutely wiped me out like,
0: <laughs> especially going out with bill Burr. i mean i'd say that must have been just you know that's a story in itself isn't it
1: yeah i was listening it was the crack like and you yeah, like it was, it was one of the best nights of my life one of the best experiences and he gave me a really nice quote and that that ended up helping me to sell my edinburgh show the following year so i was i was really really or that year actually sorry 2018 and then yeah listen and like Like, any opportunities you get, like, you know, put your best foot forward and do the best job you can. That's, you know, and then consistency is so key in this game. Mm. Turn turn over that new hour every year. I I just, all I want to do is just try and do better than I did the year before. That's, I think, the simplest way to try and just, you know, do, do better than you did the year before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose getting support slots like that do you know, I mean, it's such a great, great way of getting your name out there. You know, you're seeing, yeah. you might, you're probably seeing somebody that you might never have heard of, and you know, it, it could be a whole new, whole new fan base. You know,
1: hundred percent. But that's how I started touring myself. I did tour support the Dermot and Dave. I, then I would do small, ven- smaller venues in the same places, and I would use the Dermot and Dave shows to sell the other shows. And I, I remember doing a show in Wexford once, and I think I nearly sold fifty tickets before I'd even left Wexford. That wow. Point. So, you know, like, and that's how you build your audience. But you have to come back with a newer, better, funnier show that's different yeah. than the one from the year before. Yeah, You have to, if you turn up with the same show or try and get away with doing, like, you know, 40% of the material from last year, people remember it. Oh, like, God, yeah. They just, they won't come and see you again, you know? So you, you, you have to put that work in. You, you can't hide, you know?
0: Yeah, very true. Um, Talking about music, so, I mean, has there been any sort of Amazing gigs. What's for the best, best gig you've ever been to?
1: I, I, like, I, I've been lucky. Um, I've, I've been to a lot. One that really stands out, was one of the best gigs I've been to here in Dublin, was LCD Sound System did two nights in the Olympia. And I think it was like September, maybe three years ago. Yeah, yeah. And it was a Wednesday and a Thursday and the tickets went instantly. Yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to get a, get given some bands in the Olympia Theatre. So I was able to go to the MASH with, with two of my best pals and it was one like i love lcd sound system like i called my first show actually after first song uh they one of their songs it was called all my friends um and that was also the intro track and stuff and it was just like james murphy standing there up on top of a on top of a speaker and a documentary of lcd sound system called shut up and play the hits where they basically decided we're at our peak and we're gonna quit now obviously they didn't quit they end up getting back together a few years later but I went to see that documentary in the Lighthouse Cinema. And in one uh, in the documentary, he said to him, have you got any regrets? And he said, well, once we were meant to go and gig in, in Dublin and we weren't able to go and do the shows because of the ash cloud. Do you remember the fall? The yeah, show? yeah, yeah. And he's like, I, I really regret not being able to gig in Dublin it's somewhere we've always wanted to go. <laughs> the whole cinema cheered. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I'm never going to get to see them now. And then they got back together and they played the Olympia. And I went to see them with two of my best pals. And it was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. And yeah. they, they finished the show with all my friends. So it was, uh, yeah, that was that was incredibly memorable for me. And then, um, you know, I've seen some amazing, I'm lucky enough to do Electric Picnic and loads of different festivals over the years. Just get to see so many amazing artists and bands and stuff. It's, it's just been, but those, those kind of gigs in Dublin where you're your mates. And I went to another really, really, really beautiful Concert and um, by a musician called a Lazarus soul, Dublin based musician. And then um, it was, it was incredible. It was in Wheelands and um, another night in Wheelands, actually, Arcade Fire did a little surprise. Oh,
0: oh man.
1: Inside scoop on that. Yeah. After doing like Malahide Castle. And I saw Prince as well, actually, a long, long time ago when I was working in that in that nightclub venue. Did a surprise secret after party show, yeah. And I never forget my manager. I said, "Listen, I don't ask for anything. I need to watch this gig." And he let me look after the podium so no one would like jump off them the Prince. So I oh had to kind my- of mind the podiums beside the stage to see like Prince was like fifteen feet away from me in a in a venue that held like you know five hundred people. So that was pretty pretty incredible.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> you know, literally touching distance from, you know, from somebody like yeah. Prince is just... It's
1: just like, just, I've never seen such a charismatic, enigmatic, phenomenal performer in my life. Like, it's just a different, it's just a different beast, you know, and it's a, it's a privilege to get to see anyone like that perform.
0: Yeah, I mean, is there anyone on your bucket list that you haven't seen... That you would love to see. Uh, well,
1: obviously, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I was, I'm, a massive Queen. I'd love to have seen Prince mm. Mercury. I, I, I would, you know, what I mean that that would have been absolutely incredible. I've, I've been trying to get, actually go see Jerry Cinnamon. He's, if that's that's someone I'd listen to regularly, and I just haven't got a chance. So Jerry Cinnamon's next. He's, he's achievable as well. So I'll go see him. And uh, I wanted to see Tenacious D. I'd, I'd love to see Floyd of the Concords again. Like you know, what I, mean? I saw them years ago. And that that was mind blowing. I'd love to see them live. That's. I think they're absolutely phenomenal um, and, and hysterically funny as well, you know?
0: Yeah. No, I saw Tenacious D when they did the three arena. It must have been, it was literally just before lockdown. It um, was, yeah, it was. But Oh my God, it was just incredible. You know, all the stage, all the props and stuff they had and yeah. and Jack Black was just, it's <laughs> just crazy. I, know, I
1: think their, their album must be well over 20 years old now. I remember listening to that definitely over 20 years ago, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And do you ever see any of his like, Instagram stuff? <laughs> He's Instagram That's stuff. Hilarious. He does messing about with like video editing and all this kind of stuff. It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, I think it's no. He, he's an
1: absolute hero. Um, I, I actually I saw I saw Queens at the Stone Age in a really small venue as well. Actually, when I was in New York, and I met a, I met Blondie <laughs> that night, um, as well, and Drew Barrymore because they were all up in the bar that I was working in. And then Drew Barrymore, I think, was going out with one of the strokes at the time. And then, that was around then. And then it was funny, there was a bar manager in Dubai. And we're going to be going and doing some shows in January. And the last time I was in Dubai, I caught up with him. And he was actually at that gig on the same night. So I think I probably served him. <laughs> and we just were chatting and it's not like a mad coincidence. So we were in New York in the same nightclub but he was there as a punter. He was over there working and I was there just working behind the bar, but he was actually at that specific gig, which I thought was I thought was wild, you know.
0: Yeah, well, that's totally crazy.
1: Same as anything, right? Whether it's music or comedy or whatever it is or a show and we're living in this insane world of cancel culture at the moment, yeah. which is it's just so ugly to me. Um, and I, you know, just people like people I always find the people who create nothing and contribute nothing to this world are the ones who throw the most stones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Know? Very true.
1: Like they're not bringing anything to the table. They don't generate anything for anybody. All they want to do is, is burn the house down for whatever, you know, weird insecurities or whatever they have gone on in their life. And then, um, you know, like if you don't like something just don't watch it
0: yeah yeah like,
1: exactly don't like something just don't listen to it and I, I i don't know how like we've lost the simplicity of that message like if, if something upsets you don't watch it like there's loads of crap on netflix i wouldn't watch in a million years if i'm not <laughs> gonna write a letter to netflix about it i just <laughs> won't watch it you know what i mean i just won't watch that like that's it it's it's as simple as that like <laughs>
0: That's the thing. It's like it's comedy is a fine example, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Not not everybody loves Tommy Tiernan. You know, They're like if you don't like if you don't like him, if you don't like him, don't go and see him.
1: Yeah, I get taxi drivers always giving me this crap as well. I don't like, and I'm like, I don't care about your opinion. Like, yeah, you know, like I don't. I didn't ask for it. Like, like I, I usually just say I. Whenever I usually say I, I work in social care because. Uh, it's easier. I'm just trying yeah. to with the comedy stuff. But, like, they just... Oh, I don't think he's funny. And it's like they're weirdly having a dig at you. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, yeah. I do. I, like, you know, maybe, like, you like dark chocolate. Whatever. whatever. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's just so... It, it's just irrelevant. It's just your opinion. And if you don't like something, that's grand. But, you know, just don't watch it then. But this, you know... You know, if you, like, it's, it's just nuts, you know? I just... I think people are... I think it's turning, though, this whole... Like I I did some online shows recently, and no, I wasn't allowed to refer to Christmas because that can be offensive to people who don't celebrate
0: Christmas. No way.
1: weren't allowed use the word award because it was offensive to people who didn't win. And I'm just there going, lads, like, how much further can we go with this? Like, you know, if your list of things you can't say is longer than the things you can say for an event, maybe that event shouldn't go ahead. That's my two cents.
0: That is you know, crazy, isn't it? Maybe
1: you should just maybe everyone should just have a bottle of wine and sit in their room alone, if that's the case, <laughs> like, you know.
0: Very, very true. Well thank you so so much for chatting with me today, Danny. Um it's been an absolute Sorry, pleasure. Thank you.